In the Imperial Valley, there's a rebel who broke away from its kind and decided to travel the desert alone. No one knows why. No, it's not a cowboy or even a human. It's a mud pot. A mud pot is exactly how it sounds. It's a pool of bubbling mud, a hot spring. Its formal name is the Nyland Geyser. This mud pot looks like it's boiling, roiling brown water. Instead, the water is warm and the gases being emitted are primarily carbon dioxide. The gas is trapped under the ground and escapes through cracks and fissures through the rocks and soils saturated with water. The gas liquefies the sand and the result is a hole in the ground, maybe 10 feet across, filled with continuously stirred mud. The Nyland Geyser came into existence in the late 1950s, and like mud pots around the world, it stayed put, bubbling away. However, since 2016, it's been moving and moving, and at quite a pace, 20 feet a month. The movement seems inexorable. Enormous amounts of stone have been poured into the mud pot to fill it. The rocks just disappear into the quicksand that exists under the water. Steel sheets have been driven into the ground and they have failed to stop the mud pot's roaming tendencies. In 2017, the mud pot crossed a rail line, forcing the rail that carries 70 trains a day to be replaced. By 2019, it inched its way towards the next target, a local highway, and that highway has been rerouted twice. There are a few hypotheses as to why the mud pot is on the move, a truly unique phenomenon. But what has been learned is when a mud pot goes a-wandering, it goes where it wants to. Now, why does this matter? Well, the Nyland geyser is representative of the unique geological characteristics that make the Imperial Valley an astonishingly rich source of lithium. Along with the CO2 causing the Nyland geyser, under the Imperial Valley are brines. These brines are very salty, hypersaline. One of the ions in the brine is lithium. Estimates suggest that in the reservoir that lies under the Imperial Valley, there are 32 million tons of lithium, which, at today's price, would suggest a trillion dollars of lithium is held in these brines. And many people care, as the lithium is needed for the batteries that will power electric transportation. The question is, how do we get it? I'm Charles Zukoski, the Vivian Professor of Chemical Engineering and Material Science and the previous provost of the University of Southern California. I'm your host for Electric Futures, a podcast series exploring lesser-known stories of the energy transition from the perspectives of people most impacted by changings that transition will bring. This is Season 1, looking at lithium extraction in the Imperial Valley and how the transition will affect the community and climate change at large. This is episode two. There's a new way to access lithium in the brines, but don't call it mining. There's a big demand for the batteries, but it's a challenge in how to gain access to all the lithium needed for the electric vehicles that are flooding the streets in the world. We will explore this chemistry and more. Close to the southern end of the Sultan Sea, there are a series of industrial structures emitting steam from cooling towers. These are geothermal power plants, each spec to produce about 50 megawatts of electricity. Electricity is generated by bringing hot brines up from deep in the earth. 
Steam is generated to drive a turbine, and then the cooler brines are re-injected into the aquifer. To give you a feel for the countryside where this happens, let me describe my visit in August of 2023. First, it was hot. The temperature was 117 degrees. The countryside around the power plants is a mixture of harsh, dry desert containing the mud pots and drying Sultan Sea lake beds, and agricultural fields which, given the heat, were astonishingly green, made verdant by Colorado River water. On the volcanic buttes that are scattered in the area are pieces and flows of obsidian formed by the rapid cooling of the magma that erupted, and which, two kilometers into the earth, keep the hypersaline brines under the ground hot. One has a sense of awe when standing on the buttes. An enormous flat valley stretches south. Mountains are on the left and right. The ground is baked both by the sun and the volcanic activity. The volcanic activity results from plate tectonics, where the crust of the earth is broken into chunks that float on the earth's core. Over tens of millions of years, these plates push together and pull apart. Two plates, the North American and Pacific plates, started to slide past one another and pull apart about five million years ago and created a deep trench that is the Gulf of California. This motion created faults that crisscross the Imperial Valley today, one of which is the San Andreas that extends up the west coast of the U.S. This motion, the thin crust, and relative proximity of the core give rise to seismic activity in the valley and volcanic buttes. The mystery of the natural world is infused into the valley. This sense of awe is captured in the culture of the indigenous people who live in the area and who view this countryside as part of their cultural heritage. But despite the sense of heat deep in the earth and on the surface, life has adapted. Near one of the power plants is a fenced off field with nothing growing on it. Around the outside are a series of birdhouses. These are unique birdhouses as they are built into the ground for the burrowing owls that frequent the area. As we drove slowly around the outside of the fence, the owls would scurry out of their nests into the blazing sun to check us out. They are maybe a foot tall with curious yellow eyes. They stared at us, hopping from one foot to another, suggesting the ground was too hot to stand on. These birds are migratory and choose to live in the Imperial Valley in the summer. They dig burrows underground, no doubt to escape the heat. They leave in the winter and return each year and dig burrows in the fields or banks of the canals. As with the growth of crops up to the power station fence, the return each year of the burrowing owls indicates the limited environmental footprint of geothermal power. All that to say, Imperial Valley's nature and technology have endured side by side for many, many years. And before these geothermal plants were constructed, companies consulted with Native American monitors like Frank Salazar. Out in the field, Frank would lead the vehicles across the countryside as they move forward, protecting indigenous sites. And you're trying to tell him to avoid this part and this part, but he's also trying to find the areas where that machine could go because you don't have much clearance where that foot is, you know? Mm -hmm. So if it's a little dip, he's got to go. So he was going all over the place. And then the archeologists and the native monitors and maybe sometimes biologists, you never know, you know, what, what cast of thousands is going to be out there, you know? Wow. So you might have two, two monitors and uh, uh, an archeological survey team. And then you got the, that guy and you might have a bio out there and then sometimes BLM visits. So 
I've been on that one uh, on the west side of uh, Highway 86, uh, kind of near the Salton Sea Test Bay. So, so it was interesting because that, that was my first uh, monitoring area with Salton Sea Test Base, but literally we were right next to it in the truck haven area. So those were areas they already have, they have a couple wells out there, you know, they have the, the, in the ground, so they know there's geothermal out there. City of Imperial Mayor and environmental scientist Katie Burnworth said that they go hand in hand. Uh, I think right now we're kind of in Lithium Valley. You know, you have that receding shoreline of the Salton Sea, which is huge. And for me, I've always thought geothermal and renewable energy is part of that solution. Because right now, if you go out to the Salton Sea, you can see where it's kind of a mosaic of, you have wildlife, you have agriculture, you have solar farms, you have geothermal plants, you know, you have small communities out there, and they all coexist. And because of this, for you to understand the lithium extraction process, I need to start with how geothermal electricity is generated. The brines, trapped in the sediments under the Imperial Valley, naturally circulate and rise towards the surface. In this process, they would be expected to cool. However, molten plumes of melted rock have been squeezed from the crust and are seen as volcanic buttes which dot the southern shores of the Salton Sea. These plumes originate deep in the earth and act as a long-lived heat source that keeps the brines hot enough to be used in geothermal electricity production. The core of the earth is very hot and the earth's surface is, well, room temperature even if that surface feels very hot in August in the Imperial Valley. The result is that the temperature increases as one goes deeper into the earth. Under conditions, say, in Los Angeles, you drill about 6,500 feet into the earth to reach 225 degrees Fahrenheit, a little hotter than boiling at atmospheric pressure. However, in the Salton Sea geothermal area, steam vents and mud pots attest to the hot water close to the surface. These features attracted attention, and test wells were drilled starting 80 years ago. These tests show that water in the wells drilled to 6,500 feet has a temperature of 550 to 600 degrees Fahrenheit, well above the boiling point of water at atmospheric pressure. At that depth, the pressure is much higher than atmospheric, so the water is very hot, but not boiling. However, when the brines are brought to the surface and exposed to lower pressure, they boil violently. That is, they flash and generate high-pressure steam. The area over which these hot spots are spread and the volume of the brine contained in the Salton Sea geothermal area are enormous, making it one of the nation's preeminent geothermal resources. The process of using this resource is a bit like using a pressure cooker. You put water in a pot on the stove. You seal the pot and you turn on the heat. The water heats up and the pressure in the sealed pot increases. All pressure cookers are equipped with a pressure release valve to ensure there isn't an explosion. The pressure at which the valve releases steam sets the temperature in the pot. The higher the pressure, the higher the temperature at which the food is cooked. If the pressure in the pot is held at 15 times that in the atmosphere, the temperature of the boiling water in the pot is about 400 degrees Fahrenheit, or about twice the boiling temperature at atmospheric pressure. This can be done with a plug held in place by a spring. When the pressure in the pot exceeds the preset level, the steam raises the plug 
and steam escapes. This means that as long as you have boiling water in the pot at 400 degrees Fahrenheit, you have a steady stream of steam at high pressure coming out of the pot. This high pressure steam can be directed towards turbine vanes to make the turbine spin. The rotation of the turbine rotates a magnet in a coil of wire. The movement of the magnetic field generates a current in the wires, and this electricity is the major product of the geothermal power plant. Next, let's explore the science of the origin of the lithium in the Imperial Valley. The booming agricultural industry in the Imperial Valley comes from 2.65 million acre-feet of water diverted from the Colorado River each year to water the fields. This is a huge amount of water. An acre-foot is the amount of water that will cover an acre of land to a depth of one foot. The L.A. Department of Water and Power supplies water to all of Los Angeles. LADWP uses only 500,000 acre-feet of water a year. So the Imperial Valley has access to about five times that amount. All this water comes from snow and rain high in the Rockies. For the past five million years, the North American and Pacific plates have been separating. This produced a deep trench in the earth we call the Gulf of California. Over this period of time, the Colorado River flowed into the trench carrying its sediment. This sediment created a large delta at the northern end of the Gulf. Over this period of time, huge amounts of sediment were washed out of the Rockies and onto the delta that is now called the Imperial Valley. This delta is composed of sediments that are three and a half miles thick that are saturated with water. Under this sediment is the stretch, thinned, and broken crust. The fractured crust exposes the Earth's mantle, which has a temperature near 1800 degrees Fahrenheit. This is high enough to melt some of the rocks in the crust and give rise to volcanic activity that is seen in the Imperial Valley. The water circulates through this heated zone and leaches the sands and gravels in the sediment. That is, the water pulls minerals out of the rocks, mostly salts, and the water is turned into a hypersaline brine containing 25 to 35 percent solids. That means that if you filled a glass with brine and dried it out, you would find a quarter of it filled with salts. Or, in an 8-ounce glass about 6 inches tall, you would have 1.5 to 2 inches of salt remaining. This compares with seawater that is about 4% salt, so that if you filled the same glass with seawater and dried it out, you would see only about a quarter of an inch of salt in the glass. And this salt is the source of the lithium driving the boom in the Imperial Valley. The solids in the brines are largely salts of one composition or another, made up of positive and negative ions that pair in solid form, like table salt, which is sodium, the positive ion, combined with chloride, the negative ion. In hypersaline brines under the Imperial Valley, the positive ions are a mixture of sodium, potassium, calcium, and manganese ions. The primary negative ion is chloride. These brines also contain 200 to 300 parts per million lithium ions, or about 0.1% of all positive ions in the brine. This is a minor component of the salts in the brines. There is much more sodium, potassium, calcium, and iron. So, on the face of it, the lithium may not look important. However, lithium is valuable. 
The demand created by the push to decarbonize transportation has driven up the price of lithium carbonate, the way lithium is sold, by a factor of 10 in the last four years. Battery-grade lithium carbonate has a current price of about $35,000 a ton. To understand the significance of lithium extraction to the state of California, we talk with Traylon Bradley, Deputy Director for Sustainable Freight and Supply Chain at the California Governor's Office of Business and Economic Development. California has one of the densest concentrations of critical minerals on Earth. And it's really the geological and science that have brought uh, these resources to here in the state. And, um, you know, in the in the big looking overall, you know, uh, nationwide, but also globally and at the state, we are at the very beginning of a paradigm shift in global supply chains. And a lot of this is a result of decoupling um, from other nations and relying on certain supply chains, but also building new supply chains because we need to meet such ambitious goals on climate, um, on renewables, and on the clean economy. Uh, and that global paradigm shift really is taking place uh, right in Southern California, uh, which is where the bulk of our projects are located. We have a little bit over 30 active critical material projects uh, throughout the state, of which the majority are within Southern California. But I think the greatest opportunity in that I see and that I think some of the folks and a lot of folks at the state see is not only do you have this paradigm shift, um, which there's few times in history to really rebuild and redo supply chains, which we have right here in front of us, but you have the opportunity to do it in a way that has never been done before. Uh, and that's why Lithium Valley is really the premier capstone project of all of our projects, because it offers the opportunity to extract in a way that has never been done, you know, co-located with renewable energy in a surface area that is far less damaging than that which is done around the world um, broadly. To harvest lithium, the ions must be pulled from the brines. The process that will be used is called direct lithium extraction, or DLE. One of the fun aspects of hosting a podcast is that I get to meet interesting people. As part of working on Electric Futures, I spoke with Global Lithium podcast host and Mr. Lithium himself, Joe Lowry. He's worked in the lithium business for over 30 years and founded the advisory firm Global Lithium LLC. Joe has worked around the world in the lithium business. He understands the geology, the processing, the chemistry of batteries, and, as important, the people who make the lithium industry run. Here's what he had to say about the process. The trade-off becomes, because the capital's always going to be higher in mm -hmm. California. Just the corrosive brine, just it's California. It's not cheap. So I believe Energy Source probably will have a working DLE somewhere in the world within a couple of years. <laughs> but then it becomes once you have a working deal, and you know, it's bespoke, it has to, you know, the resonator or whatever it has to be customized for the brine. It's not a it's not a drop-in technology, which is the other big problem because what what the Reuters and the Bloomberg NEFs of the world want to say was, which DLE works? It'll be Katie bar the door, but maybe. <laughs> Success of the direct lithium extraction, DLE, in the Imperial Valley will depend on the engineering, chemistry, and market conditions. As mentioned, 
there are 37 DLE projects under construction globally. While the market is currently willing to pay a premium for battery-grade lithium carbonate, this material is a specialty chemical used in huge amounts. The more that is produced, the lower the margin will be for those producing it. The current price for a ton of lithium carbonate, as I've said, is about $35,000. Estimates suggest that with new products under development, this price might sink closer to the price required to produce the materials, something closer to $10,000 a ton. If the price were to drop by a factor of 3.5, the financial viability of many projects would be threatened. But in particular, a drastic drop in price might threaten projects that require demonstration of a new technology. For that is what is happening in the Imperial Valley. This is the first demonstration of DLE in the U.S. and the first use of DLE on geothermal brines in the world. Not only are the communities in the Imperial Valley coupled to global markets through their agriculture, but equally, they are subject to the vagaries of an extremely volatile global lithium carbonate market. This market is made even more complicated by geopolitical positioning being done to ensure that each country has access to the lithium needed for their transportation needs. For the companies working in the Imperial Valley, the challenge then is to get access to the brines and then extract the lithium from the brines in an economically viable manner. Three main companies will be involved in direct lithium extraction in the Imperial Valley. Berkshire Hathaway Energy, Controlled Thermal Resources, and Energy Source Materials. We've reached out to Berkshire Hathaway and Controlled Resources for comment and interviews, but we haven't heard back. But we did hear from Energy Source Materials. In the summer of 2023, I sat down with the company's Vice President for Government Relations, Vince Signorati, to talk about their direct lithium extraction process. Here's an excerpt of that conversation. I've, I'm, a, I'm a fossil. I've been working in this industry for 42 years. Uh, not the lithium industry, but the renewable energy business, starting in geothermal up in the geysers in Northern California. I moved down here. That was in 81. I moved here in 88 and lived here for 21 years. Uh, went to another renewable energy company, uh, moved to San Diego. Did that for three years, and I came to Energy Source in 2011, and I've been here since. So I've worked in the renewable, the renewable space for 42 years. Wow. So you've seen a lot of the transitions. Sorry, I've seen, I've seen, I've seen plenty. Um, so how do you see this lithium transition that's taking place here? It feels to me that the geothermal energy was marginally economically viable, but when you can pull a stream of lithium off, given the price of lithium, mm -hmm. it turns into a very valuable industry. Is 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 that impression right? Yes and no, because the the host plants were constructed based on their own economics and so those plants had to be profitable to whatever degree the owners and developers of those plants uh, needed to see those profits you know whatever their return expected return of, uh, on investment might be so uh, all 11 of the plants at the Salton Sea were built on a standalone basis uh, it so happens that we can bootstrap lithium uh, and so that enhances everything but um, the plants have to stand on their own. And so those contracts have to be financeable. 
Uh, it might change in the future if you can prove, if energy source minerals can prove that our technology does what we believe it does, will do, um, and other developers um, use our technology to negotiate power purchase agreements, you could potentially get a lower price knowing that you're going to be able to uh, supplement whatever power revenues with lithium revenues. Wow. Okay. And so what is your technology? What, what, what is sort of the secret sauce? The secret sauce is ILIAD. And ILIAD stands for Integrated Lithium, L-I, Adsorption Desorption. And that's, that's the, uh, the black box, if you will. And <clears throat> so our, our process is essentially three steps. Um, we take the brine after it's been used to generate electricity at the power plant. So what would otherwise go from the power plant back into the ground directly, back into the ground in, through injection wells, that fluid will be diverted to our adjacent facility. We'll keep it for about 12, 10 to 12 hours on our site during which time we'll pre-treat it. That's step one in our process is the, what we call impurity removal. So instead of taking some of the silica out of the brine in order to keep the geothermal process fluid and functional, um, <clears throat> th that, that uh, silica removal is about two trucks a day, maybe 36 tons more or less per day. Uh, we will take five times that amount okay. out of this brine. So we're going to take as many of the solids out of the brine as we possibly can to make it as compatible as we can with our ILIAD technology. During that phase one of our, of our uh, process, we will also have two co-products, and those are manganese and zinc. So um, they, they come out with the silica and the heavy metals and all the cats and dogs. So we'll have silica, excuse me, not silica, but manganese and zinc to get rid of. We hope we can sell it. Uh, we haven't yet, um, but we hope to. Uh, step two is Iliad. So we take this fluid that is now much cleaner than it was when it came into our, onto our site, and we put it through our Iliad technology. And <clears throat> Iliad is something of a water softener, if you can imagine that. We have a resin bead that's specially designed for this technology. Uh, it's called sorbent, and the sorbent is, was designed to preferentially attract the lithium and reject everything else. So much like a water softener, once these minerals, this mineral, is embedded in the sorbent, um, then it's washed and stripped. So the lithium is stripped, and we take that fluid, which is now lithium chloride, and continue the process. Step three is what we refer to as polishing or softening. And that's where we convert the lithium chloride to a crystal product, lithium crystal product. And it's uh, lithium hydroxide monohydrate, which is battery spec lithium. So it could go directly from our plant to a cathode manufacturer. Um, and that's what we set out to do at the very start of this whole thing is uh, we were going to build. We were going to build something that produced lithium hydroxide monohydrate.
So the all right. So now I've got this liquid, and you've exchanged the um, lithium for another ion, and then that that brine is it still fairly salty? Um, no, it's not particularly salty at that time because we te- we keep it we keep as much of the salt in solution as we possibly can. Okay, so that stays in solution. So it's just the leftovers of the brine. What mm-hmm. what do you do with it? When we're done with it, we send it back to the power plant, and it's injected back into the ground at a somewhat lower temperature. It comes to us at about three, 230 degrees Fahrenheit, so that's the exit temperature at the plant. Uh, we take it down to a little less than 200 uh, when it goes through our process, and then we send back to the power plant uh, a much, much, much cleaner brine and a little bit lower temperature, and it's injected back into the ground, ultimately reheated and reused. And they must like that, that it's a little cleaner because when they re-inject it, you don't pl- it, it doesn't plug the... Yes, that's exactly good observation. It's exactly right. Uh, it's a much cleaner brine. Um, it will dramatically reduce the maintenance on the injection wells because you won't have a lot of minerals clinging to the sides of the, of the pipe. So in, in your process, do you use, you have to have clean water when you're, when you're pitting out the yes. hydroxide? Yes, yes. Yes, we, we have water that we'll be buying from the Imperial Irrigation District. I don't think that there's a lot of pretreatment to the water that we use. So, so we'll take canal water, essentially, is what we're going to be using. And uh, of the water that we'll consume in the uh, processing, uh, 80%, a little bit over 80% of it will be recycled. So you oh. know, our, our contract with the IED is for, I think, 3,400 acre feet per year. Uh, we expect to use uh, less of that, and and of whatever we do use, let's just say it's 2,200 acre feet, uh, 80% of that is recycled water in our process. So it's a, uh, um, the, 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 this community, I don't know, you come around the corner and you go from stark desert to something that's green, same thing, oh, it's a sleepy agricultural community. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, it's big ag business, mm-hmm. and so there's a, there are global connections. And the same thing would be true for the lithium business, is that the price of lithium is... It's a commodity, therefore the price might be set in China now, and we're worried about um, accessing lithium, and that's one of the reasons why the IRA was passed, and there are good reasons for doing it here. And I'm just interested in how um, coupled you are with that global market and whether or not you're under pressure. There are all these lithium projects that are taking place. Well, you use the right word. It's commodity. It's traded on whatever mercantile exchange and that sort of thing. So it can, the price can and more than likely will fluctuate. Uh, we're, we're very uh, tuned to that, um, which is why our focus is to be the low-cost producer. And that's what we think Iliad will do. We, we think Iliad is the better mousetrap. But despite successful research, advanced technical development, including demonstration projects, the question is, Will the process work at scale? There are risks it might not. Now that we know how to get the lithium and the risks of these technologies working, it's time for us to examine how developing this white gold boom will change the Imperial Valley. In our next episode, I'll see you next time. Electric Futures is an original podcast from the University of Southern California, hosted by me, Charles Zukoski the Vivian Professor of Chemical Engineering and Material Science, and the former USC Provost. 
This series was executive produced by Allison Agston, the director of USC's Annenberg Center for Climate Journalism and Communication. USC Annenberg professor Mallory Cara is our lead producer. Natalie Lopez and Spencer Klein are our associate producers. Cindy Chai is our research assistant. This episode was directed by Mallory Cara and edited and sound designed by Spencer Klein. Electric Futures was recorded on location in Imperial Valley and in the Annenberg Media Center Studio B. Victor Figueroa, Sebastian Grubob, Matthew Buxbaum, and Tom Norris provided technical supervision. Our cover art is by Matthew Buxbaum. All music and sound effects used with express permission under limited blanket license authority from Epidemic Sound. If you'd like to read more about the topics covered in this podcast, please check out our additional resources document linked in the episode description. You'll also find that we have links to the transcripts of this episode available in English and Spanish. You can follow us on Instagram at USC underscore electric futures.